Father, the most amazing truth there is, is that you are a God of grace. That you extend that grace to people who do not deserve it, are not looking for it, can't earn it, and who neglect it. And yet you are a gracious God, and so you continue to pour out your grace on us. We thank you for that day when those of us who are Christians in the room came to understand who Jesus is and responded in faith. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for these recent evidences of your grace, that your goodness to us isn't just saving us, getting us into heaven, as wonderful as that is. You continually work in our lives to demonstrate your graciousness that we might glorify you more and more. And now as we've lifted the names of people to you who we'd love to see come to know you, we pray, Father, that you would grant us opportunities to speak the truth of the gospel and that the quality of our shared life together as a church would be attractive to people who don't yet know you. And now as we look at your scriptures and we see the, the origin of so much pain and difficulty and hardship, and yet your grace even in that, we pray that you teach us. And we acknowledge there's many other churches here in the valley, even within walking distance, who are doing the very same thing. We pray your grace upon them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Thankful that you are here uh, with us today. Um, if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, that will be where we're at today. Uh, before we jump into uh, the message today, just uh, a quick a comment or announcement. Uh, many of you have been a part of Church on Mill a long time. Uh, predate uh, Jill and I, who came here about six years ago. Um, our predecessor here was uh, a man named Dennis Wood. He pastored Church on Mill for almost 20 years. Um, those of you who know that know that Dennis has had a long battle with liver cancer. This last Thursday, uh, Dennis passed away, and so he is now cancer-free and with his Savior. We're, we're thankful for that. Amen? Um, so we're thinking of you, Woods, and your loss, praying for you. Um, this coming Thursday, there will be a, a celebration for Dennis's life at First Baptist Tempe, which is on uh, McClintock, and you are certainly welcome to join that. It's at uh, 7 p.m. So be praying for uh, the Woods and the many lives who were touched by Dennis. So today we're in um, Genesis 3. As Logan said, um, last week we started a new series, and we said that there's a particular kind of life that's offered by Jesus Christ. It's a life that's not free of difficulty, but it is a life where there's peace and satisfaction, meaning and joy that are given irrespective of circumstance. This life gets to the essence of what Christianity actually is. Christianity is people having the very real experience of God giving their life, his life for them. Christianity is us exchanging our sinfulness for the very life of God. When you believe in Jesus, that's what happens. 
And one of literally dozens of things that happens when someone is converted is that God himself comes to take up residence in you. The scripture we read earlier from John 7 was referring to that, the Holy Spirit taking up residence inside of believers. And Jesus used the phrase that the Spirit is an endless source of living water. If you missed last week, you can listen to that on the podcast. Now today what we want to begin to say is it's possible to be a legitimate follower of Jesus and yet to experience less than the life that he's talking about in John 7. In other words, you can have the Spirit in you and yet not know peace and satisfaction, meaning and joy. I know that you've never met a grumpy, uptight, judgmental, lifeless Christian, but just in case, can we at least agree that it's conceivable that one exists? Yes? All right. Don't nudge the person next to you. It's conceivable that we could have the Spirit who is endless living water and yet live spiritually dehydrated. Now, one of the main reasons that happens is fear. It's possible to be a Christian and yet still in many ways to live experientially as someone who's ruled not by Jesus, but by fear. And so starting today and for the next several weeks, what we want to do is hold up a different fear each week and analyze what the scriptures say in light of it. And the hope is that as we bring those fears into the open, that we could turn from them and experience the life that God has for us. Today we're going to consider shame. Shame is the fear of being humiliated. It's a haunting, crippling sense that something's not right with us and everybody's going to find out. In Adam and Eve, the first human beings, we see not just the origin and the inner workings of shame, but we see ourselves. That's what we're going to look at in Genesis chapter 3. So look at verse 1 with me. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Eve, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the garden that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, 
She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. A careful reading of this passage displays for us the origin of shame and how it continues to work thousands of years after its emergence into humanity. What shame does, what we do when we feel shame, is the exact same thing Adam and Eve do, did. We, we cover, we hide, and we blame. Adam and Eve cover, hide, and blame, and that's the exact same thing we do. The author of Genesis is careful to tell us the very first thing Adam and Eve did after they knowingly rejected God was to cover themselves. Now, let's be honest, none of us live in nudist colonies, and the people that do are kind of weird, correct? Sorry if your mother does and I just offended you, but she's weird. Verse 7, look at it. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. After Adam and Eve chose to disbelieve and disobey God, their immediate response was to cover their physical bodies. Why? Why would sinning make them aware of the fact that they didn't have clothes on? That's odd, is it not? There must be something more at play here than just whether or not their physical bodies were covered. You see, what they were trying to do is cover their shame. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. But why is it that disobeying God would lead to the knowledge of being naked? Well, the clue is in chapter 2. Look at verse 24. This is the immediate preceding story. Therefore, this is after the creation of Eve. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The author of Genesis very carefully lays out for us this truth that Adam and Eve had no clothes. But what that represented was the fact that they had no shame. You see, Adam and Eve were sinless. They had no concept of fear or exploitation or humiliation, or embarrassment. They only knew total innocence and complete delight in each other. There was absolutely no need to hide anything, including their physical bodies. Imagine relationships being like that. Relationships marked by purity and trust and love. Not even a hint of a possibility of humiliation between two human beings. That's what Adam and Eve had. And they had that with each other because they had that with God. You and I have never known anything like that. We were born into a world that's full of shame. We were born into a world already guilty. And so every relationship we have ever had, regardless of how good it is, has had some measure of exposing. But not Adam and Eve. They had complete purity between each other because they had complete purity with God. 
I don't want to be too specific here, but those of you in the room who are wives, imagine standing completely naked in front of your husband and not having even a passing thought of feeling judged or exposed or embarrassed. That confidence, oddly enough, would come not directly from your relationship with your husband, but from your confidence before God. That's what Eve had. Complete moral innocence. It's an incredible thought, isn't it? But then Adam and Eve disobeyed. God created the universe with a moral order. There is right and wrong, good and bad. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed, everything fell apart. And so their nakedness, which was a symbol of their innocence, now became a symbol of their disgrace. What showed them to be pure people now revealed their exposure. Adam and Eve had known an innocence so pure they need not cover their bodies. But more important than that, they knew an immaterial, the spiritual part of themselves, that they were right with God and each other. But now, what's the very first negative emotion that ever took place? And specifically, the fear of shame. Now, let's think about that in a couple of ways for us here today. Have you ever told a lie? The answer to that is yes. Have you ever told a lie only to, as soon as the words came out of your mouth, to feel a fear of being exposed? What do we do when that happens? Well, we cover ourselves. Now, not... Physically, of course, but we cover ourselves with more lies. So one lie leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And all that does is increase the fear of shame, the fear of exposure. We wonder every day if we'll be found out. That's shame. That's all that Adam and Eve were doing in covering their bodies, was they were revealing that they were now broken inside. Do you have a habit that you can't seem to break? Maybe it's a temper. Maybe you're a gossip. Maybe it's a complete infatuation with what others think about you. Maybe it's worry. Maybe you spend hours and hours and hours in front of the TV or video games to the neglect of real life. Maybe you're greedy. Maybe it's alcohol. Whatever your tendency is, and we all have them, the natural trajectory of our hearts is to seek to cover those things up, not to admit them. We're far more likely to keep our sin isolated and private than we are to admit to God and to tell others that we need their help. Why? Why are we like that? It's because we're like Adam and Eve. We're more afraid of what people think of us than we are willing to go to God for help. So that's the first thing that Adam and Eve did. It's they covered. The second is that we hide in shame. Look at verse 8 again. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Let me stop there for a moment. What's being described is a relationship with God such that there was absolutely no reason to fear His presence. There was the the comfortability, the, the peace, the joy 
of literally being in the presence of God every day. That's what Adam and Eve had. And yet, as soon as they disobeyed God, they hid in fear. Look at how the rest of the verse goes. The man and his wife hid themselves, something they had never done. Hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is perhaps the most tragic moment in the story. Adam and Eve had enjoyed a daily relationship with God. No distance, no space, no separation. Friends, that's what it means to be truly human. The fullest expression of a human being is someone who is free and able to love God and love people. That's what it means to be a person. Being made in the image of God is representing something of what God's like, being in relationship with God. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they didn't gain freedom. They lost it. Freedom isn't the ability to choose to do whatever you want to do. It's the ability to live in harmony with your Creator. Sin shattered that loving relationship between the Creator and the creation. And so what became normal is attempts to hide ourselves from each other and from God. God's presence had been the source of deepest joy and delight. But with the entrance of shame came the entrance of hiding. Adam and Eve hid and we continue to hide. Not, of course, in the silly game of hide and seek, but in the stuff of real life. How do you hide? Do you know? Some of us hide by throwing ourselves into school or work, thinking if we can just accomplish a lot, then no one will see our shame. Some of us hide even by getting really involved in church and investing deeply in spiritual disciplines like reading the Bible. Surely if I obey God enough, that'll cover up my shame. Sometimes we hide by attaching ourselves to other people, maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or becoming that popular kid at school or being buddy-buddy with the super spiritual person at church. The thing we find is again and again and again and again, it doesn't work. Hiding might fool other people, but it doesn't fool us. We're aware. Adam and Eve knew they were hiding. We're aware that we're hiding. So Adam and Eve cover, they hide, and then the one you snickered at, they blame. When covering and hiding our fears don't work, we tend to point the finger at each other. So when God came looking for Adam, what did Adam say? Come on, you laughed. Why is it that you laughed? You didn't laugh at the first two. You laughed at that one. Why was that funny? Speak for yourself, Kent. (laughs) If you read the story closely, what you see is that Adam not only blamed Eve, he blamed who else? He blamed God. He said, that woman, the one you gave me, 
By implication, God, this is your fault. Modern American culture is absolutely infatuated with blame. If there have ever been a people on the planet that blamed everybody else for all of their problems, it is Americans. We have the ability literally to blame somebody for everything. We blame parents, teachers, coaches, doctors, friends, siblings, the government, the economy, spouses. The list is endless. We are master blamers. We're so terrified of a public unveiling of who we are that we're content to live fake lives. Blaming our failures on everybody else. Knowing all the while that we cannot fool ourselves. And yet we're satisfied with the blaming of each other when we all know everybody else is doing the same thing. It doesn't work. Cover, hide, blame. Do you see how shame can dam up the rivers of living water? It is possible to be fully accepted by, forgiven, loved, embraced, welcomed, adopted into God's family. So, The only one who sees literally everything there is to see about you can say, you're mine, I have accepted you, I love you. And yet, us continually live with this fear of being exposed. And so, we can in our position before Christ be fully accepted. Yet in our condition, in the stuff of everyday life, still be overcome with shame. In the end, it doesn't work. Covering, hiding, and blaming cannot deal with shame effectively. It does not work. It didn't work for Adam and Eve, and it won't work for you. Now, at this point, you're probably thinking, this is the point where the preacher says, don't worry about it. God is love. You need not fear. You need not cover, hide, or blame, because God is a benevolent God, and he's ready to do this to your sin. He just won't look at it. So simply snub your shame. God ignored it, so can you. But that's not quite true, actually. When we live with the fear of people finding us out, what we're really feeling is the fear that God will expose our hypocrisy. There's there's the presenting fear, but then there's the fear underneath the fear. When we lust after naked people on the computer, we think that we're afraid somebody might walk in the room and catch us, but really we're afraid that God's watching. When we lie to our parents about a grade at school and we think we fear their disapproval, what we're really feeling is the disapproval of God. Now let me make it personal. When I was in my mid-20s, I was a full-time graduate student, and a full-time pastor. For some reason, people put confidence in me. I will yet never understand why. I was way past my leadership abilities and even further past my spiritual maturity. 
Naturally, I dealt with those feelings by covering and hiding. My personal brand of covering and hiding is I simply worked harder, worked more and more and more and more. Eventually, without understanding what was happening to me, I developed a tremendous problem with anxiety. Felt like at 25, I was having a heart attack every day. This became crippling. And it was the daily norm of my life. It became literally all I could do to get out of the shower, put my clothes on, and do the very basics of a day. And no matter how much I pleaded with God to take it, He didn't. It would not go away. Those of you who have had an elephant stand on your chest, you know what I'm talking about. It's that crushing sense that something's busted inside. I couldn't think straight, I couldn't read straight, I couldn't talk straight, I couldn't walk straight. Everything became exceptionally difficult. I told nobody except Jill. So I covered and I hid. Covering and hiding only made it worse. I was convinced I would be exposed as a fraud. The fear that I would disappoint people and fail them gave me this sense that I'm misrepresenting even God. I thought if I fail, then it will be as though God failed. That fear consumed me. Not for days or weeks or months. This actually went on for multiple years. It felt like people knew and were constantly looking at me, just waiting for me to fall apart. But what I didn't understand is what I was really feeling was the gaze of God. It didn't matter all that much if other people saw me. What I really felt was shame. What I really felt was the fear that God was somehow looking. You see, my friends, I was living in sin. Now, what was the sin? It was the sin of believing I was in charge. It was the sin of believing it was up to me. It was the sin of believing the kingdom of God needed me on the throne. I was too important to rest and too arrogant to admit I had problems I couldn't fix myself. It felt like the fear of others, but really it was the fear of trying to earn an acceptance before God. You see, covering, hiding, and blaming are actually completely understandable and appropriate actions. Because God is looking. There is a holy God who sees everything. Nothing I ever did was hidden from Him. It might have looked really nice on the outside, but inside it was just a simple propping up of self over and over and over. And so I felt shame And I should have felt shame. God was watching. Covering, hiding, and blaming are the normal responses. If this is a fear that you struggle with, your haunting sense of being found out and in being exposed by others, there's more there that meets the eye. You see, at a deeper level, what you're really feeling 
is the fear of meeting a holy God and being judged by Him. See, what I didn't understand then that I know now is that the gaze of other people, that fear of being exposed by them, isn't caused by them. It just exposes the shame that's already there. You see, human beings are sinners. We feel shame because we are shameful. We feel guilt because we are guilty. We are, in fact, frauds. All of us. Are you happy you came today? (laughs) Before a holy God who's instructed people on how to live in the real world, we've universally rejected him. Sure, there's all kinds of different stripes and brands of that, but the thing we share is God has said do this and we have done that. And then when God points out you've done that, Instead of admitting it and coming to him for mercy, we hide and cover and blame. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, keep covering, hiding, and blaming. Keep it up. The gaze of God is piercing. It is scary. We do deserve judgment. We're not good. We do have shame to cover up. We ought to hide. These are normal things in a fallen world. Carry on unless the gospel's true. Because if the gospel's true, then it changes everything. You see, Adam and Eve's sin and shame are not the end of the story. If they were, humanity would have no hope. But thousands of years later, another man came. And this man knew complete purity. This man had nothing to hide. This man had no shame. This man enjoyed complete, constant communion with God the Father and was always led by God the Spirit. He never disobeyed. He was perfect humanity. This man, Jesus, was God in skin. He lived a perfect life. And his life and his death are the way out of shame. So you can continue to cover, hide, and blame, or you can run to Jesus. Let me show you this in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. Why don't you turn there? This is a fantastic passage that speaks directly to what we've been talking about today. Hebrews 12. And if you're a college student, do you smell that lunch? Mm, that's for you. Hebrews 12. There's lots here we can talk about. I just want to point out one little phrase. That's all we have time for. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Now watch this. Despising the shame. 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The phrase endured the cross refers to the historical fact of Jesus being nailed to a cross. Do you know how he died? He died naked. Or as Tad would say, naked. He died pure, the perfect, pure, innocent Son of God died on a cross completely exposed. The cross was designed to bring humiliation and shame upon the condemned. He hung there totally naked and slowly suffocated to death. But just like Adam and Eve, the nakedness represented something else. See, for Adam and Eve, the nakedness was a sign of purity. But for Jesus, this nakedness was a sign of his spiritual exposure. The perfect Lamb of God took on the sins of the world. So the one who had nothing to cover up, his nakedness was now a symbol of the fact that he took on our shame. He took the anger and the wrath of God that we deserved. He traded his sinless perfection for our shame-filled sinfulness. Why? So that shame itself could be conquered. Three days later, he rose from the grave victorious. The Father's wrath had been met forever. Shame was swallowed up in the death of Jesus. Do you know what that means? That means for the person who turns from their sin, God exchanges your shame for Jesus' perfection. That means you're no longer ever regarded as one who should cover, hide, and blame, but you're accepted as a perfect son or daughter of God, welcomed into his very family. Jesus' life becomes your life. The Spirit comes to live in you, pouring his deepest blessings on you. And so just simply I would ask you, If that's your story, then why, why continue to cover, hide, and blame? There is nothing left to cover up. There is nothing to hide from. There is no one to blame. Jesus has taken it all. Jesus is your shame taker. Now, in closing, there's two groups of people here today. If you've never admitted your sin to God and asked for His mercy upon you through the death and resurrection of Jesus, then you ought to fear being exposed by God because that is your future. You should feel shamed. You should feel exposure. That's natural and it's right. But that fear is a gift Don't you see it's the kindness of God? God's pointing out to you, I am this kind of God and you are this kind of person, but you can become Christ-like if you will turn from your sin to me. You don't have to behave your way into that. You don't have to have done or not done particular things. You don't have to sit in this room or give money or be better than your neighbor. All you have to do is turn from your sin to God. 
Turn from your shame to Him. Give your life up and you will be given His. The second group of people here, if you're hearing these words and God has already saved you, then my dear brother and sister, are you still living a life of shame? Have you somehow taken back what isn't yours? Have you taken back your shame and held it yet again? No amount of self-effort is ever going to relieve you from your personal sense of shame. Nothing will fix that except releasing it yet again into the arms of Jesus. You are his daughter. You are his son. He adores you. Jesus has taken your exposure. There's nothing that can be uncovered about you that's not fully covered already at the cross. Nothing. So run to Jesus and enjoy Him. Jesus promises life-giving water. But the fear of shame can impede the experience of God with us. So today our invitation to you is to turn from shame and turn to God. Let's pray. If you take a moment to ask God if you are living a life of shame and fear, exposure, As our eyes are closed and we're individually talking to God, we rarely do this. But I would ask, if you're in that first group of people and you've never trusted Christ and you know that you have shame, but you'd love to be set free from it. Or if you're in that second group and you've already been encountered by God, you've been saved, you've been rescued, But fear, the fear of exposure and shame is still holding, gripping you. Whichever group you're in, if you are ready for Jesus to take your shame once and for all, just with your eyes closed, would you stand that I can pray for you? Just stand up now. Are there more?
Father, thank you for these brave men and women who are standing. I thank you that as they stand there, they say, I believe. I believe that Jesus came, died, and rose again. I believe I cannot perform, behave, act in such a way that my sense of shame can be gone because I tried hard. I thank you that their act of standing is saying to you, God, that they want to stand on nothing but the rock of Christ. The one who spread out his arms and died naked in utter disgrace so that they could have your life. I pray if these friends need to confess their sin and turn to you and be saved, that they would do that now. And I pray if they already are, that God, today would be a day they would never forget. Not because the temptation to feel shame is somehow gone, but because they've stood with you and said, I believe that Jesus has taken my shame and I desire God to live in freedom in Christ. Father, encourage them. May they feel the joy of your spirit at work in them and may shame be replaced by that complete satisfaction of knowing I am a daughter of the King. My Father is a perfect heavenly Father and I'm loved by Him. May they know the contentment of being a son of God. And as they sit, we pray this in Jesus' name.